0: In this episode of the Customer Land Podcast, I'm going to be talking about recent events in Fiji, most particularly in relationship to the Great Council of Chiefs meeting in Bau Island and their decision, even though they are currently being reviewed, their decision to undertake a review of the Itaoke Land Trust Board, the Native Land Trust Board, the uh, review of the Ngoligoly. Compensation Policy, that's the Fishing Ground Compensation Policy, and also the Ownership of Waves, and that is the Review of the Regulation of Surfing Areas Act 2010. I'm Spike Boydell, and this is the Customary Land Podcast. The Customary Land Podcast is about all things relating to the equitable management of customary land. We discuss tools and ideas needed to manage, use, and equitably maximize interests in land at the interface of custom, tradition, and development in its many forms. The Customary Land podcast is for everyone living on, identifying with, and wanting to use or access resources in or on Customary Land. Over well, the time recording this, and I'm recording this in my VW Combi van in Kangaroo Valley, because I'm here this week, some canoeing and some photography, and it's a different environment, so I'm hoping, hoping for your benefit, the listener, that the sound is fine. In the last week, we've had, in Fiji, Radha Day, or a week-long hmm. celebration of Ratu Sir Lala Sukuna. is it's the person who actually initiated the Itake Land Trust Board or the Native Land Trust Board as it was. Now, I've referred to this in previous episodes, and in the last week, the, I've, I've observed a very interesting presentation, lecture, specialist lecture by Steve Rotuva. Professor Steve Rituva, who's a pro-vice-chancellor at the University of Christchurch in New Zealand. And amongst the things that Steve said was that he was interested that the Great Council of Chiefs were going to be deliberating on, amongst other things, the Itauke Land Trust Board, given that Ratusakuna actually established it with a view that it would be reviewed over the years. About 10 years ago, Ulai Bayer and I put a proposal out for some draft terms of reference for the review of the leasehold provisions adopted by the Etowke Land Trust Board. We suggested they look at the substance and form of their leases, the implementation procedures and the overall lease and licensing management as currently governed by the Itau K-Land Trust Board Leases and Licensing Regulations to facilitate an orderly, fair and just system for all dealings on native lands. We suggested that the review, should it take place, would look at lease terms, the management and ownership of improvements of native land, And you'll recall, if you've listened to my earlier episodes, where I talk about leases as being both a solution for customary land, but also something of a curse, the importance of understanding the management and improvements on native land. Now, it also looks, uh, we suggested they look at the reliance on a percentage of hypothetical unimproved capital value which is the UCV, as a basis of rental determination and also consider alternative valuation approaches. The current imperative to review the evolving role of the Itaoke Land Trust Board procedures arises within the context of the role of land-based development in contemporary Fiji. There's obviously a need to balance the land-based economic drivers of a national economy, such as agriculture, tourism and resource development, amongst others, on the one hand and the needs and aspirations of registered landowning units on the other. Currently, the Native Land Trust Act, which has become an Itauke Land Trust Act, takes effect subject to a minimum of 22 other acts, ranging from the Agriculture and Landlord and Tenant Act, right through to the surfing decree, uh, which I'll talk about in a few minutes' time. The review, we thought, needs to have regard to the International Best Practice with particular sensitivity in dealing with indigenous land. Now, importantly, the great council of chiefs at the meeting on Bow Island last week highlighted the need to actually review the Itauke Land Trust Board. They also, interestingly, determined that they would restore the arrangements to increase the level of remuneration to chiefs, uh, whereas the, legis- the decrees or legislation put in place by the previous Banamanorama government had actually aimed to liberalize returns on customary land to all customary landowners or all members of YTke equally. Now this obviously had an impact on the chiefs in particular, and their ability to support various activities. Now, as I mentioned in previous episodes, there is currently a review of the Great Council of Chiefs currently underway, led by Dr. Joné and his team are actually reported to the Great Council of Chiefs on Bao Island. The only Outcome that I've heard directly from that meeting is that the chiefs, as I say, have restored their right to a, an increased return on their monies. That's fine if they are doing something constructively for the benefit of their communities with their increased share. So there's no underlying problem with that. The only thing that I did pick up from Minister of Etow Affairs, Iframi Vasu, was that there was a level of use of what he referred to as the ITLTB, or the Native Land Trust Board, poundage, which is a really archaic term dating back to the British Empire as a taxation component the poundage collected by the Itauke Land Trust Board in their management of affairs for the customary landowners. Now, importantly, if you're running something like the Itauke Land Trust Board, you have to have a level of revenue to pay for your lawyers, your property managers, your valuers, your GIS specialists, your record keepers, in order to effectively manage customary land. Now, If you play around with a poundage, as they refer to it, which I'm assuming here they're talking about the management fee, that will ultimately impact on the ability of the Tower Land Trust Board to properly undertake its roles and functions. So hopefully that will be adapted and reviewed and won't actually impinge on what I would see as their operating budget. Now, the other thing that came up was that there was a need to review the Ungoligoly compensation policy. Now, the Ungoligoly fishing ground compensation policy was something that Ulai Bayer and I reviewed on behalf of the government, the then Banamarama government, as consultants back in 2010. Now, Ulai Bayer and I were commissioned. To review the nineteen seventy four Ungoligoli brackets fishing ground close brackets compensation policy. Now this policy governed the procedures pertaining to the compensation of Ngoligoli areas in Fiji. Now the nature and extent of Angoligoli rights are obviously customary based and as such principles of proprietary rights are not written or clearly expressed in a way that informs valuation protocols. All N'goli-goli areas were re- progressively recorded and mapped in the period from 1941, and identifying the Ngoligoly owners for a particular area is afforded a level of clarity. The evidence book, which complements the Ivala Nikawabula, is actually accurate. That work informed all eyes and my understanding of the plurality of registers, not just legal pluralism, but the plurality of roles and responsibilities, which I've touched on before, of understanding between that which is customary and that is, which is Western. And it was a productive project. We came up with five robust recommendations from it, or five suggested, should I say, approaches to valuation. Now, those five approaches were compensation tailored to the exact rights held by a particular ungolly Second one was to assume a set of property rights that are common to all ungolly owners and then tailor market-based compensation to those rights. The third way was looking at a development-driven quantification model The fourth was a negotiated agreement, but the one that we explored perhaps in more detail and subsequently expanded to resource compensation at a wider level in Fiji with our World Bank work was a hybrid arrangement for ungollygolly compensation. And that hybrid approach was one of synergistic evaluation. And that really is a marriage between the customary landowners and those people wanting to use and access fair resources. Now, I'm not going to dwell too much because obviously that report was commercial in confidence and aspects of it which will be revisited in coming months with the Great Council of Chiefs actually wanting to have a level of clarity. But what I want to get onto today is one particular aspect, and that is the ownership of waves and the ownership of, in particular, surf waves in Fiji. Now, the review of the Regulation of Surfing Areas Act 2010 was something that was going on, at The, or the, that piece of legislation was something that was happening at the time that Olay and I were undertaking the review of the Ngoligoli compensation policy. And what we identified was that the Regulation of Surfing Areas Decree, which became the Regulation of Surfing Areas Act 2010, liberalized access to surfing areas in Fiji. For the purposes of tourism and recreation by virtue of section 3.1b. Now, what it did was cancel or expropriated any prior arrangements in relation to the surfing areas and vested all interests in any surfing area absolutely in the director of lands for and on behalf of the state. Now, this was a strange situation because. We had actually seen in Fiji a set of circumstances where, and if I take the example of Tavarua Island and the famed cloud break surf wave, it had been effectively privatized previously. And this was privatized by largely American interests to the exclusion of others who wanted to use it. And this had gone on during the early 2000s. Tavarua Island was creating a level of exclusivity for Cloudbreak, which some say is one of the top three, but it's probably one of the top 10 anyway, surf breaks in the world. And reportedly, Tavarua Island at that stage was utilizing staff on jet skis to actually try and stop other parties surfing that wave so they could charge a particular premium and allow surfers mainly from America and some from Australia to come and have relatively exclusive access. Now, recently it's been said that was around 12 million dollars worth of business came to various customary landowning groups as a result of this, which was seen as positive at one level, but the exclusivity became a privatization of an element of nature and I've written extensively about this previously because it's it was quite it was quite an interesting dimension. Now, what happened in 2010 is the Banamarama government uh, recognised that this exclusivity, this privatisation of an element of nature, was problematic. So they actually swung the pendulum the complete opposite way and liberalised the access to the surf wave, and not just Cloud Break, but to all surfing breaks in Fiji, with a view to hopefully expanding and optimizing tourism opportunities, and to make Fiji a popular surfing destination, because it had had problems previously with people going to Fiji and not being able to get access. there had been sinking of various boats, supposedly from other tourism operators. And it, it all got very, very ugly and messy. So the Banamarama government, at one level, undertook something which was seen as being a liberalization. I think it's true to say that we did see greater access to the surfing waves. In subsequent years. However, what was a bit weird was that there was no compensation. Customary rights were lost, for want of a better word. And you have to remember that with issues relating to the ungolly golly, the fishing ground compensation doesn't just benefit those who front onto the beach, the lagoon or a miscase case, for surfing area, because ungolly right and fishing ground rights expand to a different cultural dynamic. So that it may be there are people from, oh, for want of exam- an example, the Namose Highlands in the interior are beneficiaries of customary fishing right rights, the ungolly rights, uh, in a coastal area. And these are the tower relationships and the historic cultural relationships between those people who live on the coast and those people who live in the interior. So it isn't those who are just the neighbouring village, and this was the big issue, I think, of the Angoligoli rights, the sense that tourism operators would just go and talk to a neighbouring chief and say, we want to privatise or close off a, a beach or whatever and negotiate an agreement and allow people to swim, surf, paddle, fishing areas for recreation. When well, it isn't just for rights of an individual chief or an, a sort of specific community neighboring a resort because of these reciprocal rights to other members of the Yitau in other parts of the country. So how do we go forward on this one? Well, what we saw was all the, under the surfing degree decree, and therefore the Regulation of Surfing Areas Act of 2010, it went from a level of privatization, the barometer swung, or the pendulum, should I say, swung the whole way over from that element of privatization to one of liberalization, excepting there was no compensation for the expropriation of any rights and Curiously, it didn't go for the Minister of Tourism, it didn't go for the Minister of Fisheries, it went for the Minister of Lands to have oversight over surfing areas. Now, at on one level, that's great if you're running international events and you want to be able to, people aren't using the area if you've got a big international event running. And we've seen that with aspects of surfing competitions in recent years. But, I'll say the the pendulum has swung very far in the opposite direction. And so the new Rambuka government, and particularly the Minister of Tourism, Liami Agavoka, has wanted to have greater clarity so that there is compensation where appropriate to the customary landowners, but there is also access and positive approach for tourism so that is currently where we're at and there's a review underway or has been proposed of the regulation of surfing areas act now that review as i understand it is to find a middle ground between the extremes of privatisation which occurred with tavaru and cloudbreak and other surf breaks up to 2010 through the 2000s and then this pendulum swing to a liberalisation under the auspices and control of the Director of Lands. It'll be interesting to see how that project progresses and how there is a movement to get a better level of remuneration for the customary landowners. Interestingly and critically, perhaps the Ngollygolly compensation policy should have been resolved first, or indeed the review of the ITLTB and the wider gamut of land and customary ownership rights and leases, and that by implication, golly golly, be clarified before we move into the regulation of surfing areas. But obviously there's a political dimension to this, and the need to be seen to be making progress positively to ensure tourism has clarity and to also ensure that the Itake, I mean, golly golly rights holders, which are not always one and the same, are beneficiaries of compensation for the use of their spiritual and cultural areas. You've got to accept that the ungolly-golly is just land covered by water. And so when we extend this to things like surf waves, they're a sort of, at one level, a gift from God, but on another level, they are creating an opportunity for customary landowners to generate gainful employment from something which they have had a long-term cultural and spiritual connection with. So if their rights are being compromised, there needs to be this, as I referred to earlier, this synergistic landowners and the aspirations of those tourism businesses that want to be able to enable clientele, tourism clientele, to access these amazing surf waves, but having a level of regulation inherent within it. That's a, an interesting dynamic of what's going on at the moment, and I thought it would be worth just flagging up these particular issues so that we can see how things unfold in the weeks and months ahead with all of these reviews. So, review of Great Councillor Chiefs, review of the E-Tauke Land Trust Board, review of the ngolli Compensation Policy, and a review of the Regulation of Surfing Areas Act. I'm sure there'll be reviews of other aspects of legislation related to the Itake and the productive stewardship of land in the months ahead. So I'm going to keep it short today. I hope that's been interesting and thought-provoking for you. What I think is particularly interesting is how this meshes really with the uh, Melanesian Indigenous Land Defence Alliance, who have been so against leasing and regulations relating to the use of customary land by others, particularly with regard to the review of the Itake Land Trust Board, because as I've said before, the Itake Land Trust Board provides a level of legal advice, property management advice, valuation advice, geomatics and titling advice, which doesn't exist currently and is not accessible currently in other Pacific Island countries. It will be interesting to see, and, and I mean the, the whole aspect of you put it in a legal framework and it becomes transferable, you'll never get it back to its traditional understanding where it's indivisible. And once it's gone, it's gone, is salient, and I think it's it's relevant when we look at, for example, Tavaro Island, which was a an American-owned tourism venture, which, as I understand it, uh, last year, or the year before, during COVID anyway, as part of a blue-line strategy by the then Banabarama government to encourage wealthy individuals who had uh, private jets and private yachts to use Fiji as a base, and where many people were looking at the acronym W. FH, working from home, uh, we saw a number of people who changed the acronym to WFF, working from Fiji. And importantly, perhaps within this whole dynamic of the review of the surfing areas, sort of regulation of surfing areas, actually, I'd say, is the fact that a couple of islands relevant to the surfing, um, the Moti and Tavarua, actually changed hands uh, around two years, 18 months ago, and are now owned by the, um, the CEO of Google. And Google also own an island where they moor a couple of their super yachts. So, at the moment, you can't actually book to go to Tavarua. It's booked out for the next 12 months. So that's hardly surprising. Because if you are the world's third wealthiest uh, super billionaire, as supposedly Google uh, CEO is, then you wouldn't really want tourists. You'd be able to. You'd want to be able to have the ability to have your friends um, and clients utilize resources in Tavarua. So there's an interesting dynamic there that it has become privatized in a yet more elitist way. And it begs the question, it really begs the underlying question as to how land like Tavarua can, one, be freehold, and two, can be taken out of the gamut of the customary landowners. And should there be a level of retrospective compensation for these things? But it's been reported in the press, but it's not clear as to what level of financial deal was struck on Tavaro in its sale. But what, you know, what is the situation of all these pieces of freehold in a country like Fiji? and Other Pacific islands also have pockets of freehold interest, uh, which have been created by the colonizers. And should there be a retrospective review of those to put it into the superior interest of the customary landowners and create it as a leasehold over the, um, the future scenario. Something we need to come back to, I'm sure. But as ever, I'm going to close with my usual disclaimer, which is the views, insights and opinions shared on the customary land podcast of those of the host, any guests and others they may cite. They don't constitute legal or financial advice and should not be construed as such by any individual, group or organisation. Before undertaking any dealing or action relating to customary land, individuals, groups or organisations should obtain professional advice from a qualified lawyer, an experienced valuer and or a certified chartered accountant with specialist expertise in your particular country. Alternatively, you can contact Customary Land Solutions for advocacy, advisory and capacity building solutions for customary and indigenous land groups and trusts on land management, leasehold, valuation and resource compensation issues. Customary Land Solutions can be reached by email at contact at or one word dot com. Well, I hope you found today's episode of interest. I've kept it shorter because As I say, I'm Adam River, sharing this from inside my combi van, so I hope the audio quality is acceptable. And if there's any issues that I've raised that you'd like to reach out to me about, you can get hold of me at The Customer Land Podcast using the email contact at thecustomarylandpodcast.com. So, until the next episode, stay safe, stay well, and thanks for listening.